A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. For over 15 years, the Cersei Apprenticeship has been equipping teachers to understand the nature and principles of classical education and showing how those principles can be brought back to any classroom or homeschool. The Cersei Institute's Apprenticeship Program is an in-depth, personal teacher development community. With mentorship and community at its core, it's a program for teachers from all walks of life who want to drink deeply from the wisdom of the ages, engage in inspiring conversation with like-minded friends, and push hard towards truth, wisdom, and virtue. The mentor-apprentice relationship and the community that springs out of it is the very heart of the program. Each of the seven groups is kept small so that mentors and apprentices can truly know each other. The mentors guide the apprentices by providing assessment that blesses, accountability that strengthens, and regular discussions that nurture. The environment is welcome and safe. The community develops over shared meals and stories. The pedagogy is founded on Christian, classical education forms, and the assessment is for the apprentice to flourish. These are the things that set this teacher training program apart. Do you have questions about how this apprenticeship works? Our head mentors are here to help. Each week this spring, one of them will be available online via Zoom to answer your questions about the program. So whether you have questions about the curriculum, the retreat experience, or the purpose of the program, the Cersei team is here to clarify. Visit searcyinstitute.org slash apprenticeship to check this week's date and time. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 64, Stay Humble, Stay Low. Today's proverb comes once again from Boethius. I'll read it twice. He who has much wants much. Once more. He who has much wants much. What does it mean to want? Want 
is a word we use every day, maybe even many times a day. Of all the words that are significant to philosophy, want is probably the most commonly used by average people, not academics. Want is a philosophical concept that everybody understands, whether you've read Plato or not, whether you can define want or not, you understand it. On the technical end of things, want is lack, absence. We want things we don't have. To want is painful. Want is unfulfilled. Now, there are, of course, different sorts of wants. Some wants can be easily fulfilled, and others can't. Some wants are very painful, and some wants are only a little painful. Most people, most reasonable people, calibrate their wants to their means. And we do this so that we don't suffer often. If your wants greatly exceed your means, your life will be unpleasant almost all the time. But if you can calibrate your wants and your means so that your wants and your means are basically on the same level, then you'll live a life relatively free from intense want, intense desire, I mean, intense pain, the pain that comes with lack and emptiness. So you know how much money you have, and your wants more or less hang out in the ballpark of your ability to fulfill them. Now, it might be that you happily consent to the possibility of owning something very expensive, and yet not really want it. I would love to own a 1983 Lotus Esprit. I don't really want one, though. I, I feel no genuine pain over my absence of this car. It's more of just, it's a pleasant possibility. It's a possibility. It's an agreeable possibility, as Auden puts it. But it's not really a desire. There's a big difference between an agreeable possibility and desire. And of course, when, uh, when Auden refers to the agreeable possibility, he's really referring to righteousness. <laughs> right? Righteousness is not a, a want we have. Most people regard righteousness and piety the way that they think of an expensive Italian sports car. That's nice to think about, but I'm not going to go out of my way to acquire it. The sorts of things that we go out of our way to acquire hang out in this mid-range of wants and means. So it's best, your life will be more pleasant if you don't want more steak than you have the means to acquire on a regular basis. 
And if you have the means to eat a nice ribeye steak once a month, then you probably have the want to do so as well. Or the want nicely syncs up with the means. Most of our wants are on a sort of autopilot then. Once you, you know, reach your late 20s, early 30s, and you've calibrated your wants and your means, which might be what goes on. Maybe that's what goes on in your late 20s. I think that wants often exceed means up until the age of about 26 or 27. And from 27 on, the sort of realistic approach to the world which takes over is this better calibration of what your lot in life is, what it can provide you, and adjusting your wants so that it meets your lot. And your 20s are sort of a a portion in life where you are receiving your lot in life. I was commenting on this to some students the other day. You go to college, you study whatever major it is that you choose, and then around the age of 23 or 24, your lot determines what realm of work you're going to settle into. Very few people end up in a job, end up, uh, end up in a career, which is exactly suited to whatever they studied and intended to do in their late teens or early 20s. But your lot determines this line of work, which means you can live here, you'll be with these people, you'll make this much money, you can afford to have these tastes, you can afford to have these wants, and so you're settling into your career in your late 20s. And life really does get easier at that point if you can accept your lot in life and if you can calibrate your wants and your means, and then you can sort of, then you can go on autopilot. Then wants and means go on autopilot, and the paychecks roll in, the wants go down when the paychecks come in. As the paychecks are spent, the wants go away, then the wants rise again, and then the paycheck comes. It's all this sort of very delicate up and down with not not a whole lot of dynamics. If you're living a normal life, if you're living an average life. So our wants entail a kind of suffering and it is the fulfillment of wants, the diminishing of wants, the diminishing of the pain of the wants that, that constitutes pleasure. So under normal circumstances, let's say eating a steak is pleasant, uh, but only if you want one. If you eat a huge plate of spaghetti and meatballs, you're probably not going to want a steak when it's all over, and so eating a steak would be unpleasant. When you recognize that you have a certain want, you can make it go away in one of two 
one of two ways of making any want go away. You can fulfill a want, and it will go away immediately, or you cannot fulfill a want, and it will go away slowly. So those are your those are your options. You can either make a want go away quickly, or you can make it go away painfully and slowly. If you make a want go away by fulfilling it, the want will come back. If you make a want go away by not fulfilling it, it will not come back, or it will not come back strongly. The perfect sort of example of this. Smoking. If you want a cigarette, you can make that want go away very quickly by smoking a cigarette. But you're going to want another one. You're going to want another one an hour later, six hours later, a day later, and the want will be just as intense, if not more intense, when it comes back. Fulfilled wants. Grow over time, because they harden into habits. They harden into nature, and once a habit becomes nature, to go against it is even more painful. Because whatever is against nature is painful. Whether something against nature is unnatural or supernatural, it will entail some sort of pain. You could make the want of a cigarette go away by not smoking one as well. Now, of course, this route takes much longer. It entails more pain now, but less pain later. And that's because if you condense all the suffering of going without into a four-week period, at about the end of four weeks. You're done. You don't want them anymore. The difficulty of quitting smoking is greatly over-exaggerated. I think the difficulty of quitting cigarettes is sort of the byproduct of a society that wants to sell anti-smoking gear, nicotine, etc. But also of a society that simply doesn't understand. Want on a particularly philosophical level. Anyway, you quit smoking for four weeks, and eventually, you know, sometime around week three or four, the desires are no longer intense, and you may have a desire for a cigarette, you know, two months, three months, four months later, but it's not going to be the sort of immediate pressing urgency. Of having a cigarette after you've only gone an hour without having one, I have had several friends undertake long fasts. We describe this in How to Be Unlucky. I had a friend once who fasted for forty days, and he said, predictably enough, first week is the hardest, and then it gets easier. Then the desire for food after you know week two into week three, the desire for food is just not there like it used to be, because the desire for food has not been constantly, immediately gratified. 
Now what's interesting about want is that you can want whatever you want. You can't have whatever you want. But you can want whatever you want. And some people want things that are impossible to have. There are plenty of people who want things that are impossible to have, and they live intensely backward, suffering sorts of lives because what they want, they can't have. What they want is impossible. There's also learning to want what you have. He who has much wants much. There's learning to want what you have. But in order for that to really pan out well, you have to have less. Because the less you have, the less you have to lose. And those who deal in the realms of high levels of means more often than not suffer wild fluctuations. The more you have, the more dynamic what you have is given to be. I would point to um, something I mentioned uh, several weeks ago that so many professional athletes go most of their lives without having anything up to the age of 17 or 18. I mean, just average everyday kids. And then they hit the age of 19 and they suddenly have wild means. Tens of millions of dollars. And their wants immediately rise to meet those means. But the wants almost always rise higher than the means. And wants are somewhat more stable than means. I don't think that wants are wildly unstable and I don't think that Means are wildly unstable, but means are more unstable than wants. Very few people have means unmatched by wants. By which I mean very few people have a savings account. The volume of American debt is proof that most people have wants that wildly exceed their means. It's easy to make means go away. It's hard to make wants go away. Up until the age of about 23, 22, most of what I wanted was fairly cheap. Most of the things I wanted up to the age of 22 were fairly cheap. And most of what I wanted, my great obsession in life, my great um, obsessive collecting hobby in life up to the age of 22 was CDs. And no CD costs more than, you know, 15 or $20. When I was 22, though, for the first time in my life, I wanted a techie gadget. I wanted an iPod. I wanted an iPod, I think this was about the year 2004, I wanted an iPod around the time 
the fourth generation iPod came out. And I had not really ever wanted any high-tech thing in my whole life. I was content to collect CDs. I was not all that particular about the stereo I played them on, about the headphones I listened to my CDs on. I just wanted to have a lot of CDs. I wanted to carefully curate my CDs. But in 2004, I wanted an iPod. At the time, I was living in Chicago. I lived with a friend. We had a very cheap apartment in a basement. And I worked at a school, not as a teacher, but in the front office. I worked part-time and I made very little money. I think I made around um, $750, $800 a month. Of this $800, let's say, off the top, $400 for rent. $400 I put into rent. I was probably spending $200 a month, maybe $250 on food. I probably spent $50 a month on travel expenses. I didn't own a car at the time, but I bought uh, a lot of tickets on uh, the red line to go downtown. The cost of a, a bus ticket as well. My roommate would often go to his parents' house over the weekend and I would stay in our apartment and so if I wanted to, to go anywhere, I had to, I had to pay to travel. So tops, every month I had maybe $75, maybe that wasn't directly apportioned for needs. Now with this $75 was any sort of one-off incidental, anything, anything at all that I wanted to buy for the apartment, any sort of, I mean, Break a can opener, kind of buy a new can opener, that's three bucks. I mean, I had $75 for a month of all of that. And I mean, if I want to go to the movies, if I want to buy a book, if I want to, no more CDs, right? $75 a month. And so with this $75 a month, this, this bare bones of pocket money, I knew there was no way I was going to make it to the $400 dollars I needed to buy this iPod that I desperately wanted. I wanted this iPod. I wanted it. I don't know if you remember the early 2000s. I wanted it because I thought it was beautiful. It was sleek. Today I look at it. Today I look at a fourth generation iPod and think, it looks like a thermostat. It looks like a thing that you punch up to 68 whenever it's really cold in the winter. It doesn't look like an Italian sports car. It's like a thermostat. But I thought it was beautiful. And not only did I want one, and I wanted one because I saw the very cool advertisements for them. And once the seed of want was planted, I did something really dumb. I just heightened the want of this thing. 
and I heightened the want of it by looking at them all day. I would look at them, I would pull up the iPod web page when I was at work and just gaze at it. Read over the specs, didn't really know what they meant, not a tech guy. And my want for this thing ballooned. It just grew bigger and bigger. And at times I wanted one so bad, I was willing to suffer for it. And I would take my few extra dollars every month and I'd set them aside and I'd say, I'll do it. I'll save up. I'll, I'll do nothing fun for half a year. I'll put together this $400 I need. But that was not true. Of course, if you're trying to put together $400 and you're scraping together $75 every month, you might hold out with that 75 for a week or two, but as soon as you spend the first 10 out of that 75, you're like, ah, whatever. Not gonna happen this month. Not making iPod progress this month. And then you spend the rest of it on candy. So I came home every day for months, for months, and looked at this thing. And I would see the videos and the billboards, the black silhouetted figures with their little white thermostats that they were listening to. Oh, I wanted one so bad. I never wanted any techie gadget my whole life, and I had to have one of these. Well, then one day, I had this realization. And the realization was credit cards. I had a credit card. I had had a credit card for three years, the sort of thing that was stuck in my wallet years ago and forgotten about. Well, forgotten about it, not for years. I mean, I would get new credit cards in the mail. Don't forget to cancel the old one, activate this one. And I've been doing this. And I just, the credit card had always been this in case of emergencies break sort of thing. Like, there is a terrible snowstorm that suddenly besets you 70 miles from home and you're going to die on the road and you need to get a cheap hotel to stay until the snowplows come out. Like, that's what the credit card was for. This credit card was for, like, life or death emergencies. My parents got this for me back when I was 19 or 20. They co-signed on it. It was taken out in my name. They made some purchases on it, paid it off immediately, and then I had this sort of bona fide credit card. Never used it. Not once. Somehow. It was just too much of a hassle to imagine setting up all of the sorts of payments and all that business. And I was terribly uncomfortable with anything that involved filling out paperwork. And I was like, it's just more trouble than it's worth to use this thing. I guess we're like medical emergencies. Like, I have a horn growing out of my head that needs to be removed at quick care. Use the credit card to pay for it. I mean, this sort of thing. But I could use that thing to buy an iPod, and I realized this of an afternoon. 
And at the point I realized, oh, it was so odd to realize this. To realize that I had been down at the Apple store holding one of these little gadgets in my hand, lusting after it, and I had the means to go home with it in my pocket the whole time, and I never, I never thought of it. That's how far in the back of my head this was. But as soon as I realized that I could buy one, I could buy one right now. It's like the surge of animal passion shot through my body. I can go get it now. I only lasted a couple days. Of course, after I realized I could get it, all of the fears came back. I'm doing a dangerous thing. To purchase something on credit really is to enter into the adult world in a new sort of way. To have to make payments. If you don't, you could go to jail. Oh, no. But after just, after just a couple days, I was like, no, I'm going to do it. And so I did it. So I took the red line down to... Downtown Chicago, went to the Apple store, marched in, bought myself a beautiful new thermostat, and took it home. Oh, so pleased. I got home, I got back to my, my buddy's apartment, really. And as someone who had no tech savvy whatsoever, <laughs> The task of figuring out how to put songs from a PC onto an iPod was vexing. Within an hour of opening this thing, I had already prompted it to give me a screen display that made me think, oh, I've ruined it. And the sort of vexation that came over me when I felt this is better imagined than described. I have a temper when it comes to tech. I can endure um, the insults of my students, the indifference of my students. I can put up pretty well with people saying stupid things about me in comments, boxes, and blog articles. But man, when I have to do something tech-oriented and it doesn't work first time, I go a unique form of ballistic. Over the first several days I owned the iPod, I lost it a couple times. I'm all alone in this apartment, but... I mean, cursing a blue streak. Pleading with the air, like some kind of Roman rhetor, trying to coax agreement out of reality itself. I got it to work. I mean, eventually I got it to work. And there was some genuine pleasure to be perceived, enjoyed, in popping it in my pocket, putting in the earbuds that never stayed in, and walking down the street to the CVS to buy some buffalo wings. There was real pleasure to be had in this. It was only about a week after I got the thing, though, that I did something that, um, this used to be a real problem. It's not so much a problem anymore, but this used to be a real problem. And because I didn't own a cell phone at the time, never owned a cell phone, never owned any other sort of techie gadget, I didn't get the, I didn't understand the deal. 
And the deal was back in 2004, you don't put your keys into a pocket that also has a gadget in it. It doesn't work this way anymore. It's all been fixed now. I mean, today I can take my, take my cell phone and drop it on the floor. I don't even have a case on it. I can jingle my keys on it. <laughs> I, can, I can sharpen cut cone knives on the surface of a phone and it just doesn't do anything. It's so super laminated. It's so super laminated that like, it's slick. I set my, I set my cell phone on an object today, like on a hard surface, it like slips off, slips out of my hand all the time. But back in 2004, I don't know what sort of gloss they put on iPods and cell phones or whatever, but it was about as ineffectual as wax. And it was about a week after I bought this thing that I dropped it into a pocket with some keys in it. And when I took it out an hour later, it was covered in scratches. Covered. I mean, like, you've been walking along the side of the road and seen someone throw a, someone's like thrown a CD out a car window and it's scraped along the, the sidewalk and you look at it and it's just scratched beyond belief. I, I basically did that to, to this iPod. I was so distraught. I was on the verge of buying another one. That's how angry I was. That was just the first 10 days of owning an iPod. And I have to say, looking back now, the consternation, frustration, irritation prompted by that thing was really far more than it was really worth. Like take the sum of pleasure it offered take the sum of pain it offered not even close because then there was just this sort of permanent disappointment every time I pulled it out of my pocket and flipped to look for a song and it was just coated in scratches so I, I mean ultimately I would have been better off with my mp3 discman which I had acquired for like $30, $40. I played music just the same, slightly, uh, slightly larger than an iPod. So maybe you hear the story up to this point and think, well, live and learn. Everybody makes these sorts of mistakes. Everyone, everyone buys something and it doesn't make them happy. But if you're paying close attention to the story, you realize that the story is not over once I come to terms with the fact that the iPod's all scratched up. Ah, the story's still going. Because there's still this new live element in the story. And that's the use of the credit card. And after I broke the seal of usage on the thing, how easy was it to just keep using it for anything? for anything I happen to want right now. I paid off the minimum balance for two months, kept using it, minimum balance doubled. Ooh, 
That's a scary feeling. Always free cheese in the middle of a mousetrap. I remember getting the letter. Your spending limit has been raised from $800 to $1,600. <laughs> Whoa. No kidding. Oh, I plowed right through that. Plowed right through it in about six months. Max that sucker out. And then I had all of these wants remaining. And none of the means that I needed to satisfy them. He who has much wants much. So keep the has low and you'll keep the wants low too. But the more means, the more wants. And when those means go away, those wants are going to hang out for a while. And in that intervening time where wants are high and means are low and you're painfully waiting for the wants to go away, people are willing to do some remarkably foolish things to make them go away earlier, to make them go away sooner. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.